connaissait les miens Un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche Voilà le portrait sans retouche De l'homme auquel j'appartiens Quand il me prend dans ses bras Il me parle tout bas Je vois la vie en and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by character actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today is the man who played Mr. Bates in the 2003 film Freaky Friday, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David, for finally using a movie that isn't like the judge in Reba. By the way, you know, this, this, yes, Freaky Friday was a freaking great movie. That was a stunningly good movie. Great, great script. Great performances by Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan. Uh, Just Everything about that movie was good. This week, I just shot the uh, TV show True Jackson, VP. Uh-huh. And I will have you know, David Chin, that on the set, a guy came up to me and said, you were the judge in Reba. Nice. Yes. So <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel the Tavolosky files have, have kind of plowed the earth for some of my less familiar, less familiar roles. And he said, you know, you are really good as the judge. In that show, so I, I, I feel kind of uh, vindicated. Vindicated. That's the V word I was looking for. <laughs> I was looking for some kind of word that began with V. That sounds good. Well, you know, Stephen, the thing is, if I use up all of the good roles, you know, you 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 have a limited number of roles here. You have a lot of roles, <laughs> but you have a limited number. I, I, we got to build up to the best ones. You know what I'm yes, saying? Yes, yes. And we so, we've already used the potumentary, so yeah, we can't go back to exactly, that. exactly. So anyway. You know, Stephen, um, listening to your stories every week, I mean, something that uh, strikes me about them is a lot of them leave me wanting more. And not in the sense of quality, but I mean in the sense of I wish <laughs> I knew what happened next, you know? Uh-huh. Um, yes. And, um, uh, you know, so I was wondering if, if there's any sort of stories that well, you Well, I got to like tell you, you this, wanna... this last week, you know, you signed me up for that Twitter, which is... Uh, Twitter.com slash Tobolowsky, is Very that good. right? Yes, excellent. You know, I've tattooed that on my arm like Sammy Jinkus right. uh, remembers, but which is another film role. But I got a lot of tweets ever since episode 10, which was uh, Miss Hard to Get. And there's a whole group of people that have written me saying, you know, we want to know more of what happened 
with this girl you fell in love with and miss hard to get and then from chaos theory you you know you the two of you went and had this really <laughs> amazingly <laughs> amazingly bad time in paris oh god with george and marion with the bloody nose that was sister anyway all that was true but they wanted to know more so that's what we're talking about today. We should point out, by the way, before we begin, that uh, Miss Hard to Get is uh, episode 10 yes, uh, and of the Tobolowsky Files, which you can find at TobolowskyFiles.com, and Chaos Theory is episode 11. So it might be useful for listeners to listen to those episodes before this one begins. Yes, because this is a continuation, and, and as you know, David, our, our kind of a stratagem in the Tobolowsky Files is mixing stories about life with stories about career. Sometimes the stories have an odd intersection, and I think uh, this is an example. Uh, anyway, on the way home from France, Beth took a detour and went back to Mississippi to visit her family. And mom and dad picked me up at the airport and drove me back home. But I got to tell you, something in me had clearly separated from my past and from my childhood. I had my own apartment on the other side of town. I had a girlfriend. We slept together. We had dishes together that we bought at the dime store. We had parties and groups of friends. And more importantly, our futures lay before us unlike mom and dad who were busy picking me up at the airport because of choices they had made in their past. I told mom on the car on the way home that we had had a good time. We saw lots of theater. We saw Laurence Olivier. We saw Buckingham Palace. We saw the Eiffel Tower. I did leave out the part about Beth losing her train tickets and us having to ride in the baggage car and getting garbage thrown on me and having to sit outside of a train in the rain. That sounded just a little too irresponsible and seemed to more than perfectly fulfill the warnings mom gave me before the trip that I didn't know what I was doing and I was too young for the undertaking and disaster was sure to befall me. I did, however, mention Michael, the German art student who vomited on me because that story not only painted me clearly as a victim but also explained why I had to get my two Pierre Cardin suits dry cleaned. Uh, Mom had cooked pot roast for my return. That was a perennial favorite. I took a shower and dressed in some of my high school clothes that were still in my closet at home while Mom started unpacking my suitcase in preparation for the massive wash, dry, and fold routine she was about to undertake. And I should explain to everyone that Mom always did my laundry, even when I moved in with Beth. And remember, this is before the age of computers or cell phones. Mom would call me at the apartment in the morning and say she would be by to pick up my dirty clothes. She would drive 22 miles to our place. She would stand at the bottom of the stairwell and call up that she had arrived because she would never come up to our apartment. No, no, that was a den of sin. And I would bring down the laundry bag. She never came upstairs. Uh, she would take the laundry, drive it back home to Oak Cliff. She would wash, dry, and fold drive it back the 22 miles, and leave the sack of clean laundry in the stairwell. Nope, nothing crazy about that. And in our defense, I would say that mom always wanted to keep her connection with me, that I was her little boy. And for me, I was more than happy to accommodate a pathology if it meant clean laundry. While mom was busy cooking and washing, I had phone calls to make. The first call was to Sarah. 
I was going to tell her that I was back in town and she would have to leave our apartment. You see, Sarah was a fellow student who needed a temporary place to stay over the winter break. And Beth had generously offered our apartment without consulting me first. Or ever. It meant that before the England-France trip, I would have to spend three days alone with Sarah in the apartment while Beth went back to Mississippi apparently to find more clothes to take on the trip. Sarah was very much a product of the 60s. She was a natural, fiber, yoga-loving, make-love-not-war kind of girl. She was in the drama department, but I think she really majored in posture. She was the straightest walking person I've ever met. Her neck was a foot long. In fact, I believe she went on to teach the Alexander Method, which is hippie lingo for posture. In our three days alone together, I had feared that Sarah would try to engage me in some kind of tantric yoga sex that would put my sense of morality to the test. That didn't happen. Instead, she would vanish into the bathroom for hours at a time, putting my bladder to the test. I was embarrassed to ask her why she spent so much time in there. I couldn't imagine an answer that didn't make me cringe. After a couple days of running over to the filling station to use their bathroom, I finally asked her if she was all right and about the unusual amount of time she spent in the bathroom. She smiled and said she was fine. She was just using the bathroom for her yoga meditations because it was so quiet and peaceful in there. So now... Three weeks later, I was home, and I was able to tell her I would be there in the morning, and she would have to ohm somewhere else. There was no answer on the apartment phone. And then I called Beth to see if she had gotten to Mississippi all right, and she had. She told me that Sarah had left a message that she had left the apartment a week ago, and I could relax. The bathroom was all mine again. Beth and I chatted about our trip and our representative families. In closing, we would pick a good time to look at the stars. See, this was a custom we had developed when we were apart, operating under the assumption that the night sky would always be the same wherever we were. We would pick out an hour, taking into account different time zones if necessary, when we would both go outside and look at the stars. That way, using the night sky as a vehicle, we could still be together. So a phone call could have gone like this. Tonight at 9, I'll start at the Big Dipper. I love you. It was a little like someone who wants to be friends with Madonna in hopes that some of her notoriety would be transferred by proximity, except Beth and I were hanging out with the Eternal. Of course, real astronomers will tell you that the stars aren't eternal at all. The belt of Orion is not really a belt, it's just an illusion created by the enormity of time and distance from Earth. But we weren't astronomers, and we weren't really interested in what was actually there. We were interested in creating a new reality through the politics of romance. The next morning, bright and early, I drove 22 miles from my childhood home to my new home with Beth. But before going to the apartment... I got a haircut, and for all my bald listeners, try to go back in time when a haircut really mattered. I got up from that barber's chair smelling of talc and looking at that world traveler in the mirror. I would go back, clean up the apartment from Sarah, and then I would wash the towels and the sheets and make ready for Beth's arrival in a couple days. It was near the end of January. It was a new year. The air was cold and clear as I parked in our garage. 
I went upstairs and I opened a door and I felt like I was at home. The only thing I sensed was a mist was a sour smell in the air and I thought it was probably some sort of residue from a yoga ritual until I noticed an unusual container in the hallway. It was a litter box filled with poop, which was odd because we didn't have a cat and I figured it was Sarah related somehow and I filed it under the damn dirty hippie category in my brain. And I took it outside, I threw it away, came back upstairs, I opened a window to let in that cold, fresh air when the phone rang. I sat down on the daybed, I answered it. It was Jack Alder, the managing director of the only real equity theater in Dallas, and that means a real professional theater, Theater 3. He was offering me a job. He wanted me to play one of the leads in The Importance of Being Earnest. Yes, this was going to be the year of Stephen. I was a graduate. I had a girl. I had access to a credit card, which my parents paid for. My life was truly beginning to take off. And just when the sounds of my own personal triumph were blasting in my head so loud I could no longer hear Jack, my eyes crossed. Yes, as strange as it sounds, my eyes involuntarily crossed And my heart started racing. And Jack asked me what was wrong, and I was laughing. I said, Jack, I have no idea. I just felt funny for a second. Must be a combination of jet lag and a real theater job. And I looked down my shirt front, I straightened it out, and I saw that I had drops of blood on my shirt. And then I couldn't hear Jack at all, and I ripped up my shirt front, and my stomach was wet with blood. And I yelled over to the phone, Jack, I'm bleeding. I got to go now. Now, Jack was terribly concerned, and he yelled into the phone as I was hanging up, Call me back! I pulled up my undershirt, and I noticed I was covered with little black dots, and I brushed at them with my hand, and they started crawling. Fleas! Oh, my God. I was covered with fleas. I undid my belt, and there were about a hundred of them gathered under the elastic waistband of my underwear. I screamed. I was suddenly in a Roger Corman movie. I started ripping my clothes off, and I ran to the bathroom. I turned on the shower. I turned on the sink. I stripped off my clothes, dumped them in the sink. There were fleas on my ankles under the socks. As the shower heated up, I jumped in. I scratched them off. I watched piles of black dots going down the drain, and I looked over to the sink, and my clothes were steaming, and there were floating fleas swimming on the water surface. The shower beat down on my head and shoulders. I scrubbed myself until I was confident I was flea-free. With the pounding water on my head, I had to come up with a, with a plan of action. But what? What? Think. Think. I could call Dad. He was a doctor over at the SMU campus five minutes away. I stepped out of the shower, ran over to the phone, running wet and dripping down that hardwood floor of the hallway. Now I was aware there were fleas jumping on me from everywhere. I reached for the phone. It was like ants at a picnic. Now that I was aware that there were fleas on the bed, fleas on the floor and on the walls, I transitioned from a Roger Corman movie to a John Carpenter movie. I knocked the phone off the table. I started to dial, and I was getting covered by more fleas that seemed to be everywhere. I ran back to the shower, and I heard that eerie dial tone with the operator's animated voice in the background. If you like to make a call, please hang up and... The hot, steaming water, and I watched another pile of fleas get swept down the drain. Okay, think. I had to get out. I had clean clothes in the bedroom. 
So I made another dash. Fleas started jumping on me from the floor again. I opened up my drawers to pull out a shirt, and I saw black specks crawling all over them. My clothes were infested, and I moved from a John Carpenter movie to a David Cronenberg movie. I ran back to the shower to wash off again. I felt dread in the pit of my stomach. The shower was starting to cool off. I was out of hot water. Whatever I was going to come up with, I would have to do it fast. And then I realized, hey, I, I had no clothes. Everything in the apartment was infested. The clothes I originally wore were in the sink. And I made a snap decision, which, like most snap decisions, was not good, but it was the only one I could think of under the circumstances. I reached for my keys and my soaked, flea-infested pants, and I ran out of the apartment naked. I ran down the stairs, across the parking lot, into the garage. I jumped into the Oldsmobile, back down the driveway, onto McFarlane Avenue, and I felt like the girl at the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie screaming, I'm alive! I'm alive! But... Unlike movies, life has no editing room or credits to give one a false sense of conclusion. Now I was naked in an Oldsmobile driving in Dallas. So I couldn't go to the health center to see Dad. Yeah, no, that was out. So I had two options. I could drive out to Midlothian, Texas and stagger into a bait shop and say I was abducted by aliens. Or I could drive the 22 miles back to my childhood home and hope that mom had gone to the store. I should mention that this 22-mile route would carry me through downtown Dallas at rush hour, past freeways, past shopping malls, through school zones. I had no choice. I took off for home, and the movie I was in switched from David Cronenberg to Harold Ramis. I was now naked man driving like crazy through downtown traffic. When you are driving naked, you become aware of a whole different set of problems that you never think about when you're a regular clothed driver. Red lights possess a new horror. You never know who's going to pull up next to you. Station wagons, school bus, random police car cruising to get some donuts. I managed to avoid any accidental naked man sightings until I got to the heart of downtown Dallas. And at the juncture of the 35 freeway, a red dump truck suddenly pulled up beside me. It startled me, and I turned to look, which caught the attention of the truck driver who was in his 60s and wearing a baseball cap. He turned to meet my eye, and then he took in the entire vista. His jaw dropped, his eyes bulged out of his head, and he silently screamed, Oh, shit! as he swerved off the road onto the shoulder. I hit the freeway with one directive, go as fast as humanly possible without getting pulled over because in Texas, being stopped by a police while driving naked could be a life-changing event. I drove through Oak Cliff. I passed by my old elementary school, passed the mini mall, and I saw our driveway dead ahead. Mom's car was there. I parked in the driveway and ran into the garage. The back door was open, and I could see Mom through the screen door ironing in the kitchen. My only option was speed. I ran into the kitchen, through the living room, back to the back bathroom where I closed the door, turned on the hot water, and continued purging the remaining fleas that were still on me. As the water warmed up, I heard a knock on the bathroom door. It was Mom. In a very polite <laughs> but somewhat uncertain tone, she asked, Stephen? Is that you? 
When I finished my shower, I got dressed and explained the horrors on McFarland Avenue. Within minutes, Mom and I came up with a plan of action that in hindsight made no sense at all. I have no idea how we came up with this or why, but by any instrument of measure, it would be considered a bad idea. We didn't call an exterminator. (laughs) No, we didn't. Uh, We didn't call the landlord. We went to Skillern's drugstore and we bought four huge cans of Raid. We tucked our pants into our socks and we went back to the apartment and sprayed the place ourselves. Mom got at one end, I got at the other. We took a deep breath and with a huge can of Raid in each hand, we worked toward the center of the apartment where we met in a big cloud of poison. We sprayed the floors the doors, the carpets, the walls, the sofa, the bed, the dressers, the kitchen, the phone, everything. Then we ran outside for a hit of oxygen, and then we ran back inside until the cans were empty. And when we were done, every surface was shellacked with a fine coating of raid. The air had that certain sweet, toxic smell about it. We obviously felt this plan had merit because we went back the next morning and we hit the place up again with four more cans of Raid, and then we came back once again that afternoon. In 24 hours, we had emptied a dozen cans. Later, I called Beth and told her that the apartment was poisonous and we should steer clear of the entire block for a while. She said that was okay. She would just stay in Mississippi an extra day or... She could stay on a friend's floor or check into a motel or dress up as a pirate and sail up and down the Brazos River on a pirate ship. And then she asked what time I wanted to look at the stars that night. And I told her why I was going to go back home, have a couple more showers to detox, and then I would go outside. So, 8 p.m., I said. 8 p.m., and I'll look to the east. And she said, 8 o'clock, and I'll look to the west. I love you. And I said, I love you. Good night. And as if by magic, I was in a Frank Capra movie again. There are many, many crazy things that will keep me loving you. And with your permission, may I list a few. The way you wear your hat. The way you sip your tea The memory of all that No, no, they can't take that away from me The way your smile just beams The way you sing off-key The way you haunt my dreams No, no, they can't take that away from me As I suspected, the fleas were an indirect product of Sarah, and perhaps a direct product of the Woodstock album. While Beth and I were in Europe, Sarah decided to save the planet one stray cat at a time. And she brought the cats into the apartment and set up a cardboard box of sand to serve as an improvisational latrine area. But for some reason, known only to herself and her god, She never threw the litter away. So for three weeks, the fleas bred in the cat poop. And for the last week, there were no cats in the house to feed off of. So they just got angry. 
Then I walk in with my new haircut and I sat right in the middle of them and dinner is served. After two weeks of being displaced, Beth and I came back and hosed the apartment down and the fleas never returned and we never grew a second head from all of that insecticide. To celebrate, we were going to have a special dinner at home and I volunteered to cook, which was a bold move on my part in that I'd never cooked anything in my life. Beth added to the challenge that she wanted me to make a dish I had invented. Why not? When you don't know what you're doing, it's easy to come up with something new. I came up with something I called chicken volcano. It was a sort of casserole that combined medium-rare chicken, jalapeno peppers, and grapes. The only thing volcanic about it was the diarrhea afterwards. Instead of throwing the rest of the mixture out after we ate, we put it in the refrigerator where it could age properly and become a Petri dish. The next day, Beth signed up for her final semester of school. She had not had a fulfilling acting career at SMU. She didn't seem to be angst-ridden enough to get the big roles. If she got cast at all, it was usually as a child. I should not have been surprised when she came home and told me she'd signed up for a playwriting class. But I was. You see, Beth seemed way too impulsive, way too quixotic as she put it, to come up with something as disciplined, as coherent, and as unified as a play with characters that resembled human beings. She started walking around with a torn-up spiral notebook. She carried it wherever she went. She took notes at restaurants, in bed, in the car, everywhere, and we were all dying to know what this magnum opus would turn out to be. And occasionally she would say something like, I think I'm going to name a character Mr. Spoon. And I tried to be encouraging but realistic. I said, you know, I don't know if that's such a good idea. Mr. Spoon is a very strange name. And then Beth would smile and say, that's why I like it. And then she would take more notes. She enlisted several of us to type up the play for her. Her former roommate Louise, our gay friend Terry, and I each took shifts typing away. It was kind of like the blind man and the elephant. None of us had any sense of what the play really was because we kept taking turns. And I typed up some exchange about a character wanting to put blue food coloring in her water to make drinking more exciting. And (laughs) Beth kept joking that it was probably going to be the biggest tomain wreck ever to hit the stage. And we all laughed, but there was nothing in what we read to give us any reason to think that it would not be the biggest tomain wreck ever to hit the stage. Louise sat at the typewriter, and she said questioningly, Huh, Mr. Spoon? Beth laughed and said she liked the name. Louise gritted her teeth and kept typing, and under her breath she said, Disaster. When the play was finished, Beth sat down to write a title page, but she couldn't quite think of a name just yet, so she left it blank, and underneath it on the author's line she wrote, A Play by Amy Peach. I said, Amy Peach? She said, well, she had to go incognito so she wouldn't get laughed out of the school. And this was following one of our favorite quotations from the Taoists, the axe falls on the tallest tree. And I understood all too well at this point in my life the value of keeping a low profile and not getting any professors on your bad side. As I look back... It was amazing the number of big changes we were going through at that time. Unaware, Beth was writing, me, acting for real, we, 
living together as a couple. And also for the first time in our lives, we were developing friends outside of our circle at school, Alex and Alan. Now, this was a big step, but we didn't know it at the time. But a widening circle of friends is an invitation to become a part of what is known as civilization. They lived a couple streets away. They were both actors in the real world. Alan had sandy hair and a beard and had an extremely kind disposition. Alex was from Kentucky, and she was the niece of character actress Sudi Bond. And we were both kind of in awe of knowing someone who was related to someone who was actually a staple in Hollywood. And they were part of an acting troupe known as the Alpha Omega Players. During the day, I would play cribbage with Alan. We would listen to Paul Simon's first solo album, speculating as to whether Paul would have a career after Garfunkel. We decided he would. On nights off, Beth and I would go over to Alex and Alan's apartment and listen to FM radio and eat pizza. And believe it or not, that's all it took to have a great time. I remember one evening the radio station was playing Elton John's new album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, in its entirety. And we sat in silence around the radio like those old pictures of a family listening to FDR during World War II. The importance of friendships cannot be underestimated because they're created in the same way the Bible describes God's creation of man, with free will. And the exercise of free will is what ultimately defines you as a person. When you watch a movie, you're always guided by a soundtrack. And the swelling music tells us and the audience that the letter you're reading is very important or something on the other side of the door is waiting for you. In life, we don't get that kind of guidance. And you never know what news you hear will change your life. I needed a soundtrack that evening when Beth came home, scared and excited. One of the main stage plays in the school season had fallen through, and the department had decided to fill the spot from within. And plays by SMU playwrights, past and present, could be submitted to a committee. Beth's playwriting teacher, Biff Leonard, had submitted an untitled play by someone called Amy Peach. After a week or so of deliberations, a simple notice was thumbtacked onto the call board of the green room. The play by Amy Peach had been chosen by a committee to be presented to finish off the subscription season. We were screaming. We were flabbergasted. Beth's play, the one Louise and Terry and I typed, the one we never read, and the one all of us made fun of, had won. And now the entire school was taken up with the mystery of who is Amy Peach. Even in fantasy, no one picked Beth. Someone thought Amy Peach was really a man. Some thought it was a professor in disguise. Some thought it was one of the amazing talents we knew were in our midst, like actress Kathy Bates, Powers Booth, James McClure. Tony Graham White, the theater history teacher, joked that he wanted to take a bite out of I'm a Peach. When the identity of Amy was revealed, no one knew what to think, because I don't think anyone had a clear opinion on Beth. She was just this odd, cute girl who didn't get cast much. Beth ended up calling the play Am I Blue, because she loved Billie Holiday's version of that song. The play went into rehearsal immediately, and for the next few weeks, Beth and I were in two different worlds. I was playing my first leading role in a professional production, 
Beth was attending rehearsals as a first-time playwright. And there was something a little unreal about the sudden changes in our circumstances. Not in terms of money. No, we were still broke. But in terms of notoriety, I was learning for the first time what it was to leave the cocoon of anonymity. And, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I started to notice that when you don't get the auditions and you don't get the jobs, it's very easy to hide behind the persona of someone with enormous talent that the blind, underachieving world has passed by unjustly. But when you do get the job, all of those comforts vanish. Now you're no longer a genius in waiting. Now you have your chance. Now your name is in the program, and there's almost nothing more frightening than being judged on your own work. Now you could be called a sellout for doing a sitcom or a project whose only merit is commercial. Your value, justly or unjustly, starts to be attached to the projects you work on. If they succeed, you have worth. If they don't, well, it opens up an entirely different world of hurt from someone who never gets their chance. Now Beth and I were dealing with critics. What if we were torn to pieces? What if the Dallas Morning News makes a meal out of Mr. Spoon? What if our parents have to watch our public humiliation? Beth told me straight out she wanted me there opening night. We asked Alex and Alan to join us for moral support. We sat together with friends and family trying not to have a heart attack, and we laughed and we made small talk. But out of the corner of my eye, I saw the Margot Jones Theater fill up to the brim. I saw critics from the newspaper pull out their notepads. The house lights started to go down, and it hit me how huge this was in human terms. And what would be left of Beth if this play were an embarrassment? We sat in the dark. She squeezed my hand until the circulation stopped. The lights came up on stage, and there was a young girl, 16, wearing different pieces of outfits, very reminiscent of Beth's long underwear miniskirt look. The play got a little laugh right away. I breathed easier. The girl appeared to be a street urchin with no home, and she meets our leading man, a lonely fat boy of 17. He's been given an all-night pass for a whorehouse, as a fraternity hazing, he's a virgin and terrified. She has nowhere to go. They decide to spend the night together. As the play proceeded, laugh followed laugh. There was a certain wacky reality, but underneath everything there was terror and hurt, just like Beth on any given afternoon. To her credit, after about ten minutes, I wasn't even thinking about Beth at all. I was captivated. In the middle of the hilarity, our young heroine gets a phone call from her drunken father, and everything turns on its head. The laughs in the theater stopped in a heartbeat. Everyone was silent. No one could breathe, and I felt tears burning down my cheeks, not just because of the play, but because of Beth. This play was not just good. It was one of the best things I had ever seen. And remember, we had just seen Lawrence Olivier and John Gielgud in London. Rather than answer any questions I may have had about Miss Hard to Get, now I had more questions than ever. Who was this girl sitting beside me? And what was her talent? 
We celebrated at an impromptu party at our apartment. Afterwards, everybody came over, and there was true joy at being near the epicenter of a moment so unquestionably victorious. It was interesting to watch all of our friends relate to Beth in a familiar but significantly different way. She was no longer anonymous. She was already being transformed by her work, and her work set her apart from everyone. In the room that night, you could have observed on a microscopic level the seeds of fame, the busy, joyous, noisy form of isolation. The drinking started. Reefers were lit. Chaos reigned in a tame imitation of a future party we would have a little over a decade from now. I checked in on the status of the kitchen. I noticed everything in our home had been eaten, including the six-week-old remains of Chicken Volcano. I grabbed Beth and showed her the empty dish in the fridge. She made a face of mock horror and then laughed and then mime slitting her throat with her index finger. And in that moment, I realized two great things about actors. One, they'll eat anything. And two, they'll take advantage of any opportunity to celebrate. That's not a bad road to walk in this world. As we cleaned up from the party... We felt so much was different in our lives since we got back from Europe. We felt we had a handle on things. But in truth, we had no idea what was coming our way. And even if we did, we would not have had the foresight to know what it all meant. We had no defining soundtrack. Within a few weeks, Beth would be in despair working as a waitress in a Mexican restaurant. Our dear friend Alex would call us crying one night that Alan had vanished without a trace. And instead of a career in New York or Los Angeles, we were soon heading off to be students once again in Illinois. Am I blue? Am I blue? And these tears That was The Politics of Romance, a series of stories told by Stephen Dobolowski. Stephen, kind of a cliffhanger there. It seems like you've learned a lot from your uh, HBO brethren and your NBC <laughs> brethren in your story writing. <laughs> you know, you know what, what I learned from was, was Charles Dickens, because he had to do uh, a podcast of his own every week. And he always began with kind of an introduction that kind of set it up and always ended with a cliffhanger. But this... Uh, I promise you in the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll have a nice payoff for those listening. Well, I'm sure people will look forward to it. Unfortunately, unlike Charles Dickens, we aren't exactly paid per word. But, oh, that's uh, true. <laughs> we're, not, we're not paid at all. Uh, but, uh, but you know what, guys? Knowing that lots of people are listening is its own reward. So if you guys could spread the word about the Tobolowsky Files, that would be really great. Leave a review for us on iTunes, blog about us. Uh, and let us know what you see about the Tobolowsky Files. Email us 
uh, you, you can email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. How, do you, how can people email you, Stephen? I think the best place for people to reach me is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com, and I'll spell that. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L-O-W-S-K-Y. Now, at gmail.com, now you know what I've had to do my entire life at every department store, at every, every place I wrote a check in my life. It makes me crazy. Also, you could get a hold of me at Twitter. And let me try this, David. Uh, at, you could get a hold of Stephen Tobolowsky, me, at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. Excellent. Excellent. I've trained you well, sir. I've trained you Thank well. Thank you. Thank you. The, the circle will soon be complete. By the time... <laughs> By the time you're listening to this, Stephen very well may have more followers than me, despite uh, you know starting Twitter like 16 months after me. But uh, you know he, he's a rising star. I've hitched my wagon to the right star, I think, in this case. So, uh, in any case, yes, and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com/slash/davechensky. Although, uh, you know, again, it, it it is a futile effort because I don't think I'll be able to maintain the follower account. But. Um, and it, <laughs> Tune in next week for another story about uh, Stephen's life. And uh, do we have a tease for that story, Stephen, or are we are we gonna we're we gonna save it? Well, I think I think we do have a Glee story coming down the pike, and I think that should hit right around Valentine's Day. I'm sorry, I've never so, heard that uh, show before. Is that uh, popular at all? It it is a popular show about singing uh, a lot of singing people. All right, yeah. Well, I'm obviously joking. The the hit show on Glee, which has already been renewed for a second season. Can you believe that? That is so fantastic. Yeah. So tune in next week for very possibly a story about Glee. But in any case, this has been the Tobolowski Files, uh, hosted by SlashFilm.com. You can find all of our back episodes at TobolowskiFiles.com. You can also subscribe to us by going to iTunes, search for Tobolowski Files. And uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. So, guys, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. was Whoa.